Oopsla podcast brings you up to speed on topics covered at this year's Oopsla conference in Montreal, Canada. For more information, visit the conference website at oopsla.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the official opening of the Onward Track here at Oopsla. Um, when I read Snow Crash 12 years ago, back in 1995, the web was just starting to emerge as uh, the next big thing. I loved Snow Crash. I thought it was the, project, the product of a fertile imagination, processing all the energy that was being placed onto the web at the time. Uh, I didn't think the metaverse could happen. I thought it was just an artist's rendition of the web. And for those of you who have never read Snow Crash, first of all, you should read it. And uh, it, was, it was one of the first novels of the, of the cyberpunk movement, um, which is characterized by computer networks playing a, c- a central part in the, in the plot. Uh, Snow Crash's metaverse was a, a virtual 3D world where real people would take virtual identities and would live virtual lives. Um, that was sort of what happened on the web in a, in a way. You know, people, sort of anonymous people, suddenly spring into uh, fame through their code or through their blogs. So I, I was happy with that, with that kind of metaverse. Well, in these, two, in these 12 years, the web bubbled, it crashed, it survived. It's a nice story with a happy, sustainable ending. And the Upsil community has very much been at the center of it. Um, we have been sort of you know, working on the inner engines of what supports the web with things like object-oriented programming and uh, service-oriented architectures, but we are sort of assuming that nothing really new or strange was going to happen at the application level. Well, guess what? Something kind of strange uh, is starting to happen right now. Um, Snow Crash's metaverse is actually sprung into existence. It was done by a company called Linden Lab. Um, and our speakers are going to tell us all about it. Um, what they did was really brilliant. They took a bunch of things that were already in existence out there. They packaged them in a really, really interesting way. And then they did this other thing that, as we know, makes all the difference. They opened it up in all sorts of different ways. And it's this openness that I, fe- I feel it's really exciting here. Um, it is my pleasure to introduce Mark Lenser and Jim Perprick from Linen Lab. Marco, Mark is a studio director at Ice House Studio at Linen Lab, where he's responsible for the overall of Second Life's architecture. Prior to Linen Lab, he was CEO and chief architect at Glyphic Technology. He was a senior software engineer at Go, director of R&D Opcode Systems, and he also worked at Apple for, Apple for several years. Um, he has done several contributions to open source uh, projects. Um, he has done work on programming languages and virtual machines, software tools, and integration with web and cell phones. Jim Perprick is a senior software engineering at Linden Lab, and uh, he has been working on integrating the mono virtual machine with Second Life. Uh, he worked also on integrating HTTP uh, scripting support and on the web services, grid defense, and security systems. Uh, previously, Jim was an author on the Terra Nova blog, developer on the uh, Warhammer Online and Dragon Empires um, multi-online uh, role-playing game. And he was a research fellow at the Mixed Reality Lab at Nottingham University, where he was also a PhD student and received his PhD there. So um, please join me in welcoming uh, Mark Lenser and Jim Perprick. Excellent. Well, 
Thanks. We're going we're gonna to play a bit of ping pong and do our talk back and forth. Let's start with Jim. <laughs> okay, so uh, we really like crowdsourcing and user-generated content uh, at Linden Lab, and uh, it's central to Second Life. So first of all, let's get some uh, crowdsourced presentation going. Uh, hands up, everyone who's heard of Second Life. Excellent. Uh, hands up, how many people have a Second Life um, avatar? Uh, not so many. Uh, and how many people use Second Life in the last 30 days? Okay, that's about right. Okay, so I'll, I'll spend a bit longer than normal on this, on this uh, first slide then. So Second Life is a 3D virtual world like the virtual world of Snow Crash. Um, it's, uh, it's a virtual world that can be uh, where, where you uh, take, the, take control of an avatar, which you drive around the virtual world. You see the virtual world from the viewpoint of your avatar. You can see other people in the virtual world uh, as their avatars. You can go up and you can speak to them. Uh, Second Life is a persistent virtual world, so if you log into the virtual world, you create a box, you change something, those changes will persist, and they'll be there the next time you log into Second Life, unless, of course, somebody else has come along and changed something in the meantime. Um, and Second Life is also massively multi-user, so at the moment we see minimum concurrency levels of 30,000 30, residents online at any one time, and maximum concurrency of 50,000 uh, residents online at any one time. So at, at every moment of the day there are 30,000 people using Second Life. So this stuff has been done before. Um, the thing that makes Second Life interesting and different to the other virtual worlds that you might use at the moment, like World of Warcraft, um, is that Second Life is almost entirely built by its residents. That means they build the 3D objects, that means they uh, create and upload the textures, that means they script objects in the virtual world to make them interactive, um, that means they upload animations to make the avatars move around, and it also means they own the things they create. And that means you can build something in Second Life and you can sell it to somebody else in Second Life. It also means you can build something in Second Life and take it out of Second Life, however you like, so you might create some, a movie or music in Second Life, take it out of Second Life and use it outside Second Life, and you own the intellectual property rights on that stuff. So that means that you can go into Second Life, start a business, uh, you can use it however you like, and you own the stuff that you create, and then you can use it for any purpose you like afterwards. Um, and Linden Lab's business model is that uh, we sell land and services. So at the moment we're a very um, kind of funky web host. Instead of buying disk space and bandwidth and, and uh, the use of an Apache server, you buy virtual land by the square meter. Um, so what do people actually do uh, in Second Life? Well, first of all, it's important to say Second Life is not a game. This is the thing we have to say by the marketing department. Um, it's not a game, it's a virtual world. So people play games in Second Life and they build games in Second Life, but Second Life isn't actually a game. Um, so an interesting example of one of the games that has been built in Second Life is a game called Tringo. It combines Tetris and Bingo. So instead of numbers being called out that you try and slot together on a, um, uh, on a bingo board, Tetris pieces effectively are called out and you have to slot them together on your bingo board. When you create a, uh, a contiguous block of colour, um, that disappears and you get some points. And so it's an interesting game. It's also a very social game. As you can see from the screenshot in the top left-hand corner, people sit around, they play Tringo together in the same way that they play bingo, they talk to each other, you know, they kind of, they kind of boast to each other that they're going to win and so on and so on and so on. It's a very social game. It took Second Life by storm. People are playing it all day, every day in Second Life right now. Um, it was made by a software engineer in Australia whose Second Life name is called Kermit Quirk. He made it over uh, Christmas one year. And uh, because he owns the rights to the game, Tringo, he then sold it to a real-world uh, software publisher who then made a version for the uh, Game Boy Advance, which you can see in the bottom, bottom corner there. So Tringo is a good example of something of a game that's been made in Second Life, but also a good example of how people have built something in Second Life. They've taken the IP out of Second Life that they own and they've, they've taken it to the wider world. So... 
Another thing people use, are using Second Life uh, for increasingly is live performance. So right from the start uh, of, of Second Life in 2004, people used Second Life to build nightclubs. And so what you'd do if you wanted to build nightclubs, you'd get a plot of land, you'd build uh, a nightclub as a 3D object, you'd put some lights in, you'd put maybe a box in the corner you could click on to make your avatar dance in sync with everybody else in the nightclub. Uh, and also you'd stream music from the internet into your parcel of land. And so actually all Second Life do- is doing there is hurling an earl to some streaming audio. And all that's actually happening is that people are listening to an MP3 stream over the internet altogether. But the fact that they are also at the same time in a virtual world and they're hanging out and they can see each other, they can comment on the kind of party frock that they're wearing to go to the nightclub really makes it an incredibly engaging experience. So we've had nightclubs in Second Life from the very early days. More recently, we've seen people doing more and more things with, with live performance. So in the uh, top right-hand uh, picture on the, uh, on the slide there, you can see Kermit Quirk. Uh, sorry, not Kermit Quirk. Um, uh, sorry, I, oh, I can't remember his avatar name. So he's a, uh, he's a green frog in Second Life. In real life, um, he's somebody who actually uh, was homeless for a period when he first started using Second Life. Frog so, Marlowe. Frog Marlowe. So, sorry, yeah. It's Frog Marlowe. He pioneered life performance in Second Life. He was homeless at the time. He was on a friend's couch using, using Second Life, making money by performing uh, in Second Life. He was playing a guitar, recording his audio, uh, streaming it into Second Life, and then people were logging into uh, Second Life, going to his club and listening to him play the guitar play the guitar, but this is actual live performance because he's performing and he can also also comment on and interact with his audience. So if somebody turned up to one of his performances and they've got a great avatar or they've got a wonderful piece of clothing, he can comment on it. So you get the feedback loop that you get a live performance. In fact, you get more of a feedback loop than you often get in a real live performance because you're actually right there and uh, you you can talk to the people. So since Frog Marlowe pioneered this, we've had people like Suzanne Vega uh, in Second Life and real world artists doing, doing performances in Second Life. So and that's another thing people use Second Life for. Um, another really interesting application is movie making. Um, so because Second Life is resident created, um, there is pretty much everything you could want. Every 3D asset of pretty much anything you could think of, you can go into Second Life and you can either ask somebody for a copy of or you can go and buy a copy of. So this means that if you want to make machinima, which is uh, a type of movie making where people use 3D engines and game engines to script and, uh, and record pieces of, of movies. You may have seen things like um, Red versus Blue, which is done in the Halo engine. Um, but Second Life really lends itself to movie making, machinima movie making, because you get to build your set, you get to or buy your set, you get to build or buy your uh, costumes. You can then get your friends together and you can uh, cast them in roles for your thing. You can give everyone scripts. You say action. You record the output of your um, video card, and then you make yourself a movie. So here we've got um, some slides from. Uh, uh, Silver Bells and Golden Spurs, which is a cowboy film in Second Life. So, so uh, you know, uh, you got to get a piece of desert, build yourself a cowboy set, get everyone to dress up as cowboys, and then act out your, uh, your cowboy film. Um, so another really interesting application of Second Life is conferences, and this is becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. So this is the kind of money shot of mixed reality conferences. What you can see in this slide is uh, somebody at the Berkman conference watching uh, the speaker in real life, but also at the same time being logged into Second Life and seeing the video of the real-life event that they're at being streamed into Second Life into the virtual world where they're also sitting down watching the conference in the virtual world. Oh, my head. <laughs> and also... And also, if you look really closely, you can see in the background a Dalek in the virtual version of the conference, thus showing that, uh, that actually conferences are much more fun in Second Life because Daleks get to turn up. Um, but the really interesting thing here is that the question you might ask yourself is why would you want to go into a virtual world 
and watch a video stream when you can just watch a video stream on the internet. The important difference is that while you're in Second Life watching that video stream, you're also aware of all the other people watching that video stream. And so when you go to a conference, you go to a conference to hear the the talks, to hear the lectures, Um, but you also go there to mingle with everybody else who was interested in the lecture that you went to, and you get to do that in Second Life. You turn up, you watch the real live streaming conference, and then you look around you, there are 30 other people in the the virtual conference, you go up to them afterwards and go, oh wow, you know, are you interested? in such and such a topic, you meet somebody, and, and the, uh, the conference itself becomes a kind of a, um, a, uh, a piece of dust around, the, around which a pearl of community can form. So people go to the conference, but actually a lot of the value they, they get out of it, as well as seeing the conference, is meeting the people who are also interested in the same stuff that they are, and discussing it afterwards, going to get a virtual coffee in the coffee breaks in the virtual conference, and getting to meet people and getting to discuss the things that they're hearing. So uh, another thing that's been happening in Second Life is people have been using it for charity. So this is a charity that, uh, that some of you from the UK uh, might know, but uh, probably isn't well known around the world. It's actually a thing called um, Co- uh, Comic Relief, which is a, a, um, a charity run by comedians in the UK. And every year they have a red nose day where lots of people in the UK run around wearing a red nose. Now, these red noses, you know, it's good fun, but actually they make your nose sweat, they don't fit properly, they make you sound really stupid when you talk. So if you wear a red nose in Second Life, it's, uh, it's of course, uh, much, much easier. Um, and, so, uh, and so in Second Life, um, people like... Uh, Red no- held a red nose day in Second Life to raise money. People have also done, uh, the American Cancer Society have done a relay for life for the last three years in Second Life, um, where they've had people do a sponsored walk in Second Life. Now, two advantages there. You don't get tired while you're doing a sponsored walk. You don't get rained on while you're doing a sponsored walk. And also, you can build your course. So instead of having a sponsored walk through a city, you end up building a course which incorporates lots of interesting things to look at. So actually, it becomes a virtual sightseeing tour where the um, people who put on the relay for life make sure that all around the course there are lots of interesting things which you can look at and potentially buy, and if you buy the things, then the money goes to charity. So uh, there's been and lots of stuff uh, that's been done with charity in Second Life. Just well. so you know, it's, it's real money. They've, they've raised over $85,000 this year so far. Yeah, so I, I think it might actually be $100,000. Might might be $100,000 now. Right, so another thing that, uh, that people do a lot in Second Life is, um, is they experiment. So because it is a virtual world in which you can do anything, people have done everything. So, you know, in my previous life as a virtual uh, environment researcher, we would build virtual environment platforms, and then we'd build an application. You know, here's the application we built on our virtual, virtual environment platform. We'd spent six months on it. We'd try it out. It could sometimes succeed. Sometimes it could fail. We never found the killer app. Now, if you let everybody at the same time develop every application simultaneously in six months, you can explore enormous amounts of the problem space. And so uh, you get lots of experimentation. You get many people finding things that don't work well in Second Life. You get many people finding things that do work well in Second Life. You get a Cambrian explosion of people experimenting with uses of Second Life. Now, this is a really interesting one. Uh, it's... Uh, it's um, a shoal of virtual fish. And so uh, it's, uh, they're made by somebody called um, Serena Scalagrimson. It's their Second Life name. And uh, when she came to Second Life, there were fish in Second Life, but they were kind of textures that just kind of went backwards and forwards or rotated around in a circle. And she was like, well, you know, we have scripts in Second Life. We can do better than that. So she built some virtual fish uh, that shoal, that look for food, that try and avoid predators, that swim around, that... Um, that uh, have all these incredible emergent properties um, that you see with kind of shoaling and flocking in, uh, in, in computer science. And so now you can go to a, a piece of um, a virtual ocean. You can stand in the middle of it, and the, uh, the fish look amazing. They, they, they swim around you. They kind of look at, you know, run past you to try and get food and so on. And it's absolutely an incredible experience. Now, the really interesting thing there is Serena Scalagrimson in real life 
is um, a lady called uh, Karen in her 30s from Lincoln um, in the provinces of England. Um, and uh, and she'd, never, she'd never programmed before. She worked in IT. She'd never done any coding before. She came to Second Life. She started playing around. She built this absolutely amazing artificial life simulation in Second Life. And then she had artificial life researchers from the real world coming up to her and going, wow, this stuff is amazing. I want to do artificial life research in, in uh, Second Life. I'd like to work with you. Would you like to do a PhD? And all the rest of it, right? So this is... Second Life completely blurs the boundaries between amateurs and professionals, right? It's not just people who have access to labs in research environments who are doing interesting research in Second Life. It's people who are just turning up and going, huh, okay, let's see if we can make some fish. And if these things happen. So you could say, well, hang on, is this just some kind of isolated data point? You know, loads and loads of people use Second Life. This, you know, this is just some, some freaky outlier. Well, actually, it turns out it's not. The people who use Second Life are ordinary people. So... Um, Karen in real life is female. Well, it turns out 43% of the people who use Second Life are female. Karen in real life is in her 30s. It turns out the median age of Second Life is in its 30s. Karen is from the provinces of England. Well, it turns out that 54% of people who use Second Life are from Europe. This is no longer a North American phenomenon. And as you can see from the age distribution there on the graph, um, you know, it is not just geeky males in their 20s who are using Second Life. It's absolutely everybody. And the demographics pretty much match the demographics of uh, the Western world. So, so you have ordinary people who turn up in Second Life, play around, start writing code, start learning to program. Second Life taught the world to code. So um, if you're a programmer in the UK, you'll be aware of the phenomenon that when you speak to people and you ask them when did they start programming, it's often because, you know, back when they were kids, they had a ZX Spectrum, which is like a, a home computer that ran basic, and it cost, you know, buttons uh, in the days before Nintendos and Playstations. And so, and so it is with Second Life. People are coming to Second Life, they're using it, you know, it is a development environment, it is, uh, you know, it has a compiler, it has an editor, um, you can script cool stuff that's interactive very quickly. There is an incredible community to help you learn. So while you're in Second Life, if ever you get stuck, there is a class to teach you how to script, how to texture, how to build, how to start your business, how to market your business in Second Life. Um, And there are groups that are online all the time. So you get stuck, write some code, you go to the scripters of Second Life group, you type in, uh, this isn't working for me. There are two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people who are there to help you 24 hours a day. So this is an incredible resource. Uh, Second Life is bringing ordinary people to programming in a, in a really, really big way. It's just unfortunate, the language that they're learning. And with that, I'll pass over to Mark. All right, so I'm going to pick up this thread. Um, so I'm just going to reemphasize those numbers. 15% of residents code. There are 10 million accounts. At least 1.6 million of those used it in the last 60 days. 15% of residents code. That's a shitload of programmers. <laughs> That's a pretty amazing, amazing thing. All right, so there's two and a half billion lines of code written in Second Life in an absolutely horrid, broken language, <laughs> which I'm now going to expose you all to. Warning, this might burn your retina. You, know. you, you may not want to look at this coding example too closely because it, it might really make you ill. Um, all right, what, what does this scripting language that we got all those people to code look like. I don't know if you can see that all the way back out there. There's technically, it should have been bigger. But um, okay, it's like your jank, boring, dull, block structured language, and it's got ugh, globals and user written functions and you know good old standard stuff like the for construct and you know pre increment and a bunch of all standard expressions. It's just you know it's 
completely vanilla run-of-the-mill language. Yeah, it's got types. <laughs> um, and, uh, oh, but it's got, like, terrible support for the types that are in it. Like, you actually have to call these incredibly awkwardly named functions just to find out how large a list is or just to actually get an element out of the list. And so it has no syntactic support. Oh, except for some goofy things. Like, for some reason, we have a syntax for appending to a list. Some horrible, goofy language. It does have a few interesting aspects to it that are worth pointing out. One is that, um, fundamentally, it has a concept of state, um, and so when you move between states, it's like switching an entire set of event handlers. Um, so scripts run and respond to events, and you can very quickly switch between states um, that jump back and forth between event handlers that are active. It's kind of a it turns out actually to be one of the surprisingly useful things about it. But probably more important about scripts is probably about the runtime environment in which those scripts run, and that's probably what makes this. Um, somewhat more interesting of a system because linguistically it, it's just frankly not that exciting. <laughs> All right, so, ling- so what is the runtime environment of a script in Second Life? What, what you're seeing there is there's a piano. Uh, the piano is being um, constructed. Um, you can probably barely read it. There's a tiny little code editor up and there's an object construction manipulator thing up. And, but here's, so you build 3D objects in Second Life. Um, we'll give a little quick demo at the end, we hope. Um, Scripts actually are loaded inside a 3D object called a prim. A prim is like a cube or a cone or a, or a, or a sphere. Um, and everything you see in Second Life is made out of those things. The scripts are run inside the prim. So the runtime environment of the script is like this little 3D object that it's stuck inside of. Uh, multiple 3D objects are sort of smashed together into objects. So that piano that you see is you know, several hundred primitives stuck together. Um, there's probably a script in every single one of those keys. Um, that's running. Um, and then the objects, <laughs> and the objects are upon the land, and they shall be good. Um, and the objects are out in the world, and um, that is the environment in which a script lives. So a script doesn't have standard in and standard out, and a script doesn't have environment variables, and a script doesn't have uh, you know, a command line. A script is sort of the guts of a 3D object, and that 3D object exists in the world. So what can these scripts do? They can't do print line, <laughs> and they can't read standard in, all right, and they, they can't do that. But they can, so they, they have a, a bunch of, they fundamentally they communicate, and they communicate in several clear ways. One, scripts in, related in, inside a single object, meaning between scripts in the same primitive and within a single entity, um, can send messages to each other. Very short, simple messages with like a big string parameter and a number parameter, it's kind of boring. Nothing exciting, no types, no message registries, no, uh, no, <clears throat> no interface declarations. They're just like, I can send you a string and a number, and I can get it back a string and a number from you. Um, they can talk to nearby objects, and by talk I mean chat, and by chat I mean text. And, and they can talk on public channels in which the other people around can hear, or they can talk on high-numbered channels they can hear. Um, they can do HTTP out to the Internet. Um, they also can kind of do email and XML RPC, but we don't like to talk about that too much. Because <laughs> they were slow and hard to scale. Um, but they can do HTTP out to the internet. So we have sort of three hierarchies of communication. Um, none of it highly structured. Um, they have sensors on the environment. They can detect when other objects are around them. They can detect when objects are hitting them. Um, 
and they can interact with avatars. They can find out what avatars, what other people are around them. They can send them messages. There's a few other goofy communication things. But basically, think autonomous bot. Each one of these scripts is living into a shell unto itself. It doesn't share memory with anything else. Right? It doesn't have some grand interface to a bunch of other objects. It's this little shell in which it has a few means of communications out and back in. Now, this is implemented in the current LSL virtual machine, um, which is a kind of standard affair. We compile that language down to a bytecode set. Um, there is a <clears throat> textbook virtual machine implementation. Um, so, uh, so the story of LSL is this, that originally when, when back when, before I was at the company, uh, they were building this virtual world, and they thought, oh, it's great. The virtual world has physics, and we'll just build everything out of physics. And at some point, someone thought, maybe we should actually like, put a scripting language in this so you could do things which you don't actually have to build out of physics. Like, I don't know, maybe build a vendor, vending machine or something. And uh, I, I think the uh, Corey, who's now our CTO, um, was given, or went off and wrote LSL1, the first version of language, in one night. Um, <clears throat> and then after that seems kind of useful, he then went off and got like a whole week to write LSL2. So the current language um, was written in an entire week, and it has a really textbook standard virtual machine, which is n nothing to write home about at all. Um, and one of its most amusing uh, terms is that it keeps all of its state in persistent form. In other words, it really models a virtual machine of like 16K bytes, and it really takes every register and writes it out in network. Ugh. Yeah, so it's kind of slow. <laughs> all right. So what about this language? Well, it's all wrong. Everything is wrong about this language. All right? Absolutely everything is wrong. It's a hideous linguistic construct. The syntax is miserable. All right? It's got absolutely nothing interesting and tons of problems. It, the library is horribly inconsistent and, and, and impossible to remember. This is great wiki, which everyone uses all the time, because like, even figuring out, like, even the string functions are in, inconsistently named. Um, it's got horrible support for built-in types. Right? I mean, there's not, even, there's not even syntactic sugar for string ma management except appending. Um, everything has to fit in 16K per script. Your bytecode and your data. 16K. It's kind of small. There's absolutely no debugger, and it's dog slow. <laughs> really, it's really all wrong. It has no user types, it has no arrays, no classes, no include files, no libraries, no virtual... None of this stuff, all of which we would all take for granted in a decent program, program environment. And yet 15% of all Second Life residents script. And yet there are 2.5 billion lines of script running. There are millions and millions and millions, hundreds of millions of objects running and scripted right now today on the world, running across 4, 000, uh, 15,000 simulated processes. 15,000? I don't know, 14 and a half, 15,000 regions. Um, and a huge distributed network of 4,000 machines. So it's all wrong, or is it? Because those problems are all micro-scale, and I'm not saying that those things aren't real problems. Those are the problems that um, even myself in my past life as a language designer have been you know, really heavily focused on all these tiny problems. How do you make the language right? right? Those are all micro-problems. The macro-problems turn out to be the ones that actually really get people to code or not. Right? So what we actually get right in LSL... Um, all coding is done in very tiny units, the script. The scripts can't be very big, so you have to actually code in small units, and you actually have to um, test in small units. Your code, by nature, has to be modular. <laughs> um, 
Everything is done based on message passing and concurrency, which means that as a programmer, you basically have to program on the assumption that everything is running concurrently in the world. Um, let's see. Uh, I want to tell you, I didn't, since probably many of you don't know how Second Life is actually run, Second Life has um, 15, or about 14,500 regions. A region is 16 acres of simulated land, and each region runs it on its own CPU with its own uh, process space and single process. Um, within that region, we typically run between two and 4,000 scripts are running simultaneously. So right now, that's between 30 and 60 million scripts being simultaneously executed on, this, on the grid right now, simultaneously. Um, yeah, you have to code your scripts based on the notion of concurrency and replication. Um, it's an extremely fast development loop. You're in world. You, as your avatar, all coding is done in the world. It's not offline. There's no offline builder. You build in-world, you script in-world. Um, it actually has a working code reuse model. I don't know if Jim mentioned there's a microcurrency system called the Linden Dollar, which people use things. There's a thriving economy in zillions of things, but in particular in scripts, because often scripts have to be self-contained. Right? I can actually buy a script from you that, oh, well, this is a script that makes, that makes an animal actually follow you. And you can just take that script and drag it, drop it into your you know, nicely sculpted cat, and your cat suddenly follows you. And there's a thriving economy. So we actually have code reuse, despite not having any linguistic support whatsoever for it. Um, and <laughs> as we heard this morning, in a, this morning talk about how important massive concurrency is going to be, it is massively concurrent. I'm not joking. There are between 30 and 60 million simultaneous scripts running on. Most things that you build, if they're big, you have to build in terms of building concurrent systems because that's how you get... Scripts are only 16K, and you generally have to have lots of them on your objects to make your objects have different parts that all do things. <sighs> okay. <clears throat> so now, these are, you know, in, in most of the languages, you know, considered very difficult problems. And, you know, like massively concurrent programming. Oh, wait, Second Life kind of does that. Um, localized state changes. Well, actually, we just gave up on having any global or persistent state whatsoever. It's entirely your local state. Each script has its own local state. The end. That's how people program. Uh, we uh, enforcing the independence of code. Well, we actually enforce the independence of code by the sort of goofy nature of the runtime environment of the system. Object migration. Well, it turns out actually objects with running scripts can actually, while they are running, move from region to region, which means they are really migrating from CPU to CPU, from process to process, um, from machine to machine. Um, that actually all works. Um, and we are intermixing the code from thousands and thousands and thousands of programmers at once. So these are very difficult problems in most programming systems. Um, obviously, with an incredibly goofy-ass language, you can actually make it work, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, the, the image, by the way, there is, is from a, a gray goo attack, which is where you build um, a system that is massively concurrent and self-replicating, and oops, gets out of control. And yeah, we get a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> which can be kind of um, a problem. So there are problems with um, giving the tools for massive concurrency to end users because they do things. Um, so remember, only you can prevent gray goo. <clears throat> I'll expect all of you to be careful in your programming. Uh, actually, I think the, the, um, this is a very interesting uh, mechanism of code management. Um, what you're seeing there is a map of the world, and the red stripe are regions that have been taken offline on purpose by the on-call engineer as a fence to keep migrating gray goo code from leaking out into a greater section of the world. Honest. Okay. There are, in fact, um, obviously, those things that are wrong in the language are things we'd like to fix. 
I mean, we're not dumb. Most of us are, you know, computer scientists and really do yearn for a decent programming environment when we're not at work and we're in-world actually writing scripts on our own personal time. But these things aren't easy, and they aren't clear, and they aren't obvious. I don't know what a library means when there are, you know, I don't know, 100,000 in-world objects using that library live across several thousand CPUs, and someone wants to upgrade it. I'm not sure how that's going to work, or how that could work, or how it should work. Um, I'm not sure what the semantics of upgrade mean, because I'm not sure what the semantics of what does building mean, what is a build dependency in an environment which is entirely 100% live. I'm not saying we can't all come up with theorems about this, but knowing what is actually going to work for, wait, 15% of users that program who are not programmers, these are not easy answers. These are not clear. Um, Persistent state. People yearn for persistent state in Second Life because you've got to squeeze everything into 16K scripts. And right now we basically tell people, you have HTTP, go store your persistent state off. And that might actually, in fact, be the right answer. But even there, understanding what are the right patterns and giving them tools to make that pattern easy, again, these aren't clear questions. Um, So, you know, people always say, why don't you just throw libraries into it? I wish I had include. Well, uh, it's not an easy answer. This isn't just a, you know, build it, compile it, run it kind of system. You know, you've got thousands of objects. Oh, did I also mention that you can take an object out of the world and put it in your inventory, which pickles the entire thing, including the complete state of all the scripts, and you can, like, two months later pull it out of your inventory and drop it, and the program just picks up where it left off? Um, That's, in fact, how we deal with there is no start and stop for a script, really, in any sense. Everything just gets pickled and unpickled at all times, which means that, yeah, I upgraded the interface, only there are, of course... 500,000 pickled objects in the world that are using it. How do you upgrade that? Um, (laughs) Okay, so there are all these problems, and yet people build incredible, incredible, incredible stuff. Uh, That's a picture of the International Space Flight Museum, built by a bunch of volunteers, which has now blossomed into an archipelago of science and education, encompassing both um, amateurs, government organizations, educational institutions, and real research companies. Um, It's a wild, wild place, um, really great. They build incredible, incredible things. Of course it should be better. We'd like it to be faster. We'd like rational features of code. We'd like people to have a choice of languages perhaps other than something um, coded up over the course of a beer drunken night on a bet. (laughs) And we'd sure like better debugging or other better facilities. And now I'm going to head on back to Jim, who might tell you how we might get there. <laughs> Thank you. So um, these are all big problems. Um, <laughs> and Second Life is a platform, right? So it may not look like Windows. It may not look like Linux. It may not look like Mac OS. You don't install it on your um, laptop or your desktop and then uh, you know, install applications on it, and write programs on it, and so on. But Second Life is a platform. Okay, so people build stuff on it. It's out there on the web. You know, we install the operating system. We run the application. But actually, you're turning up and you're writing code. And, uh, and you're writing applications on Second Life. And then you're selling them to people. And other people might use them. You might give them away or so on and so on and so on. So, so we've got the situation. We've got a platform. 
we've got um, we've got a horribly broken language. Um, people are saying add arrays to it, add objects to it, add this, that, and the other to it. What should LSL become? What should we do with it? We certainly can't throw it away because we've got two and a half billion lines of code written in the stuff, so we have to support it in the future. So what, what should we do? Well, there was another company who, uh, around about the same time, was having some of the similar problems, and they kind of went, well, actually, it turns out that lots of people want to use lots of different languages, and hey, it turns out that you know you can never turn off applications, and so you know you get these horrible problems with DLL hell where you've got you know someone some old piece of code relying on some old library function and some new piece of code that wants some new library function and you know they had quite a lot of money and they you know, had quite a lot of people looking at this problem and so you know we thought well okay let's try that also around the same time there was a small band of completely crazy people who decided to build an open source version of it and so we thought, right, okay, so this big platform company are doing this thing, and it seems like it might be quite a good idea because you can't get programmers to decide on the best programming language. And at the same time, um, these band of people were kind of making it work on Linux, and we had 3,500 Linux servers, so we thought, well, okay, maybe we could use that. And so uh, we started looking at Mono. Uh, so the plan was we're going to run LSL on the CLI on Mono, so we're going to get this crazy broken language, and we're going to compile it down to the CLR, and then we're going to allow other CLI languages, and we're going to allow other CLI language, uh, libraries. And basically, we're going to get out of the way. Having made a completely horrible fist at being language designers, we decided that we weren't very good at it, and we'd let other people do it. And, uh, and also, having been completely blown away every day and every week by the amazing things that our residents do, we kind of went, right, okay, generally, the best results for us have been when we've provided the lowest level uh, and the most freedom, and then we've got out of the way and let people do it. So, okay, we're going we're to give people a virtual machine, and we're going to say, right, you know, you develop the perfect language for Second Life, or use your favorite language that you want to use. Um, and all we're going to do is give you a, um, a sandboxed uh, VM um, that, uh, that we trust to run your, your code on, and, uh, and hopefully we're going to get a bunch of other nice things like uh, a high-speed JIT, like um, some decent, sensible versioning that will allow us to avoid our DLL hell problem where we've got old scripts relying on old libraries when we want add new libraries um, and uh, you know we're going to have dynamic linking so that we don't end up with these uh, horrible static dependencies between uh, between uh, the scripts and the, the library functions they're executing and this thing's cross-platform so hopefully if this thing turns out to be a good idea and it works well on our servers then we can kind of go right okay maybe we should start um, embedding virtual machines in our client um, which runs on, on Mac and Linux and Windows and Mono runs on all those platforms and then we can start doing cool things like migrating scripts from servers to clients so that people can do local interaction with scripts without having the um, round-trip latency of interacting with the server. So, you know, it seemed like a good idea and we, we gave it a go. But there are many, many differences between um, Second Life and the simulator environment in which scripts run and, um, and uh, standard desktop environments that, that things like CLR were designed for, and some of them uh, Zero has already um, commented on. So the first one is that there is no single process. You start a script off and it runs on a, on a simulator, but if that script is scripting a car, if you've created a 3D car in the virtual world and you've said add a script to it, and then you've made a script which overrides the control inputs of your avatar so that when you go left and right instead of your avatar moving left and right, your car turns left and right, um, and then you put your foot down and you drive off into the sunset, pretty much every 30 seconds or so, your car is going to cross the boundary between a region simulated by one process and a region simulated by another process. And at that point, the script needs to migrate. But it might be in the middle of a loop. So we can't just wait for an event handler to end. We have to serialize the complete state of the script, including its threads. We need to do thread serialization. We need to do um, script migration. We need to do thread serialization. And we also have preemptive threads. So we can't just wait for you to yield. We are actually going to have to enforce the fact that you're going to have to yield pretty, pretty, um, 
pretty quickly from the, the point when we asked you to stop. Remember, our, our 15% of our users who script, they aren't all cooperative. <laughs> they don't know good engineering practices. Right. They don't write yield. <laughs> so the thing we're going to do is we're going to do thread serialization. We're going to do thread serialization on top of the CLI running on mono. Right? So this is something which is not supported by the CLR. We're going to capture continuations, which the CLI doesn't support. Uh, so what we're going to do is uh, whenever our script uh, wants to make a function call, i.e. it could go into an infinite recursion, or whenever it's going to make a backwards jump, i.e. it's in the middle of a loop, we're going to insert a yield. We're going to say, do we need to stop now? If the answer is yes, we are going to, um, we're going to jump to a postfix that we've injected into our method in a normal CLI assembly, and what that postfix is going to do is it's going to copy all of, the, uh, all of the local stack state into a heap object, stick it on some heap stack, and then return to the calling function, which is going to check to see if there's a stack already on this heap stack. And if there is, it's going to do the same thing. So we're going to unwind the stack, copying the stack to heap objects. Once we got to the end, we've got two things. We've got a scripted object, um, a, a, a CLI object, and we've also got a CLI object, which is the, effectively the, uh, the stack of that object copied to the heap. So then we've got those two objects. We serialize the two. We throw them off to a... Uh, through to another server where we can unpack the whole thing and start the thing running again. And so uh, this, stuff, this kind of stuff has been done before in Java uh, with Java Go X and Breaks. This is a very uh, similar approach. There are some difficulties with the CLI. Particularly, the CLI can have managed uh, pointers which you can't actually uh, ever copy to the heap. So then you have to do something like synthesizing them or, or adjusting your yield point to make sure that you do it at a point where we don't have any um, managed pointers on the stack. That's not completely solved solution, but... Uh, but uh, we've kind of sidestepped it by just not generating them in our, uh, in our compiler at the moment. Um, so let's actually have a look at how that stuff works, because it's, um, it's quite involved. Um, so here's some, here's some assembly code. So we're not even on source code now. This is CLI assembly, which you really, really, really can't see. But basically what's happening in this piece of code is that this is a, this is a Fibonacci function that's had these, um, this uh, bytecode injected in it to, uh, to be able to support these uh, uh, capturing the continuations and then migrating um, the script over to somewhere else. So the first thing we do in the, in the, um, when we enter the function is we go, are we restoring? I.e., if, if this is not the first time this function has been called, but this, this method is actually restoring from having been half run before, um, we say, are we restoring by looking to see if there's a, a stack frame on this heap stack that we need to restore? If there is, we basically copy all that stuff um, uh, into, into local variables ready so that we're ready to go. Um, we, then, um, we then look to see if there's another uh, stack frame on the heap. Um, if there is, then uh, we effectively resume that, which is going to kind of jump to the, the, uh, our, our callee and effectively unpack that whole thing and do the same thing for the callee. Um, the, the next thing we, we say is um, uh, if, if, we're, if we're not doing that, if we're not restoring, then we're basically going to jump to this saved you uh, question mark. So, you know, we've just had a function called, do we need to save? We've run out of time slice. Do we need to pickle ourselves and send ourselves off to another process? Um, uh, if, we, if we do need to uh, save ourselves, then we jump to the postfix and pack ourselves up. And that tiny little bit of code in the middle is the actual function, which goes, okay, fine, let's actually do some Fibonacci processing. So you end up taking a very small function and generating a very, very large method out of it. Um, but by doing this, you can basically, at the CLI level, you can capture continuations and you can shovel, um, you can, you can shovel running um, CLI processes around. You can capture threads. You can migrate them to a different process. So this is not on the level of LSL. This is not for just our language. What we've got is we've got a compiler that compiles um, our language down to a standard CLI assembly. And then we've got another process which does this stuff. It takes a CLI assembly and basically rams a load of code into it that will make that uh, method yield 
Um, it'll turn every function into a coroutine, and it'll add the postfix that will, add, that will capture the continuation so we can shift the stuff off somewhere else. So this is non-trivial. I mean, it's been done before, but it's, it's, it's non-trivial, certainly for the CLI. Um, so this solves the first big problem we have, which is that we start a, um, an application running in, a in one process, and then we need to send it to a different process. So, okay, we've done that thing. What's the next thing we need to deal with? Well, as Mark's also said before, we don't just have three worker threads. We can actually have up to 14, you know, if, if, if you think every region can have um, 14,000 primitives, like boxes or cubes or whatever, um, then potentially it can have reasonably up to 14,000 running scripts on a single process where... Um, in order to make everything in that region interactive, so that every single box or sphere or cone in that region, you can click on and it can do something. It can be active. It can be uh, doing something in the world. Now, and, and you should point out that the simulation rate is 45 frames a second. Right? So you have to do, you have to do potentially 15,000 scripts in an environment which has to be doing its full simulation loop 45 frames a second. Right. And it also <laughs> needs to be doing other non-trivial things like um, simulating solid body physics and also... Uh, distributing updates to everybody um, about where the position of everybody else is. So the, the simulator is quite a busy bee. Um, so we have this enormous need for concurrency. Each region may have, you know, in the region of between five and 10,000 um, running scripts, there are 15,000 simulators, there are 30 million running scripts on the Second Life Grid at any one time. So this is big concurrency. Right. We heard earlier on in the kind of language design thing that, you know, in the future, maybe we're going to need some more concurrency because we're going to have more threats. Right. Well, we have 30 million scripts running concurrently right now and we need to support them. So please, 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 please fix it for us to make it all work nicely. In the meantime, um, we've still got to come up with some, some other solution. So Mono and the CLI use operating system threats. So if you've ever tried to create 10,000 threads on Linux or, um, or OSX or, uh, or Windows, you find that the operating system kind of starts wheezing and complaining, even when you say, actually, I only want an operating system thread with 32K of memory. I mean, it kind of goes, well, you're completely insane. That's a tiny amount of, of stack space for, for your thread. But even if you ask it for, for hardly any thread, um, the operating system starts whinging and moaning and, and isn't a very happy bunny. Um, and so the way LSL2 does this is that it uses one operating system thread, and so it executes the tiny virtual machine that the stack and the heap and the texture in the 16K block, it executes a tiny um, amount of uh, operating um, of, uh, of, of opcode, uh, and then uh, it yields to the next one. Now, what this also means is that all the library calls are not thread safe, right? So even if you wanted to use 10,000 operating system threads and your operating system would support it, your scripts are then going to call all these library functions that are assuming that uh, only one thread is running them. And so we have 300 um, library calls. It's a non-trivial amount of work to make all this stuff thread safe. So actually, it would be quite nice for us in a pragmatic solution to be able to use one operating system thread in the first place. So hang on a minute. We built this thing that made our scripts pack themselves up into a tiny little blob so we could send them over to another process. If we just ask them to pack themselves up at the, end of a, um, at the end of a time slice, then we can just move over to the next script, which we unpack, and we start running. And actually, we've now got one operating system call. It all looks very much like the old system, and actually, we cannot worry about making all our library calls thread safe. So, cool. We've got this hammer. We've hit script serialization with it so that we can migrate it somewhere else. We're also going to hit uh, massive concurrency with it, and so now we can have 10,000 um, scripts in our region again. Right, cool. So what's the next one? Well, the next one is that we're not shutting down. Um, so we're not a desktop application where we're, um, you know, we're not Photoshop, we're not starting up, loading a bunch of code from maybe DLL plugins and so on, and then um, at some point in the future wanting to reload um, a new DLL, an updated DLL, and so shutting down our process and restarting our process again. We can't shut down our process. Second Life needs to run 24-7. Uh, you know, we're at kind of 1-9 um, reliability at the moment, but hopefully we're <laughs> going to add some more 9s to that in the future. 
Um, so, uh, so, you know, we can't shut this stuff down. So the, the CLI allows you to kind of unload an application domain to, uh, to unload a bunch of code. But the problem, again, is that we have 10,000 concurrent scripts. We can't give each script an application domain. They're far too heavyweight. We can't have 10,000 application domains in our process. So what are we going to do? Well, hang on a minute. We've got this hammer, which allows us to migrate scripts between processes. We can also use that hammer to allow us to... Um, schedule scripts, turn them off, turn the next one on. We can also hit this uh, not shutting down problem with the same hammer um, by migrating scripts between application domains. And so what we end up there is we end up with n application domains. So not 10,000 application domains, not one per script, but just n, where n is some number that seems to work quite well. In the case here, we've got three. Um, And so what happens at the start is that new scripts get added to those application domains in a round robin. So you you want to create a new script, you need to have it executed in an application domain, you throw it in an application domain, the next script you you throw in another application domain. Um, At some point later, the object with that script in may get deleted. And so there may be no references to the code that's running uh, on that object anymore. And so then it becomes one of these dark green things that sinks to the bottom, which is an unused assembly. Now these unused assemblies build up in the application domains. Eventually, at some point, the, uh, the application domain gets some value of, of, un, of uh, unused code that you want to get rid of. And so then what you can do is you can migrate the running scripts to the, um, to the rest of the application domains as if you're moving the script between a different process. And then once you've migrated all those scripts in, you're not adding any more scripts to that unload domain. Once it only has unused scripts in, you can then unload that domain. You can create a new one which has no scripts in and therefore no unused code. So you just keep running this process over and over again. Effectively, you're scavenging running scripts from... Uh, application domains which are full of cruft and once you only have cruft in them you can get rid of them and create a new one so again we've hit the same we've hit another problem with the same hammer and, uh, and we've kind of managed to work around it so another thing which we can't hit with the same hammer is that we're not running in an environment whereby we allocate memory and we're only interested in exhausting the entire platform's, you know, the entire machine's memory. So it's not a situation where, you know, we've got a script, it can allocate memory, eventually the machine may run out of memory and some exception may throw, you know, malloc has failed, you've run out of memory, blah, good, good night, Vienna, the whole thing's over. We actually want to limit these scripts so that they can't allocate all the memory in the machine, they can't make the simulator start um, thrashing to the hard drive, and they can't stop any other script from starting in the same region. We want to have 16K per script again. That's our platform. That's the way things work. We want to emulate that in the CLI. And so the answer, the, the work around here that we've done is that we've subverted the profiler. Um, so what we do is you load a script, you allocate memory. Um, on every memory allocation, there's a profiling API mono that will let you know, okay, you know, an allocation has happened. It's this size. Uh, so you start off from zero. Every time your script allocates memory, you just keep adding on to it. When you get to 16, that's the earliest point at which your script may have overused its memory allocation. It may not have overused its memory allocation because it may not be using some of that memory anymore. And so at that point, you can then look through the object graph, see how much memory it's actually using, reset the value back to the actual amount of memory that the script is using, and then let the whole thing go again, and it can start growing again. So again, you know, it's not particularly nice. Um, but it's a workaround that's meant that we can, we can emulate our runtime environment using the CLR. So where the hell are we? Is it done yet? We talked about this at Langnet 2006. We talked about the same issues, the same solutions. You know, we haven't spoken about it for a year. What the hell's happened? Well, actually, it turned out that as soon as we got back from Lang.net, a lot of people wanted to use Second Life. So we've basically spent a year dealing with scalability, horizontally scaling our databases, building some future infrastructure that means that hopefully in uh, a year's time, Second Life will still be running. Um, but now we've started to pick up this work again, and so, uh, and so hopefully um, we're going to have public tests of 
our scripting language running on top of Mono um, on the live Second Life grids. So you'll be able to play around with this stuff before the end of the year. Um, and so where we are at the moment is that uh, LSL, our scripting language, compiles to CIL. Um, we can translate most CLI assemblies um, by injecting this micro-threading in it. And we know when we can't do it, which is good. So, you know, you, you c- it is possible to give us a C-sharp assembly or an um, Iron Python assembly that we can't translate, we can't inject micro-threads in because of these problems with managed pointers on the stack. But we can tell you, and you can be upset, but then you can maybe change it or maybe, you know, write it in a different language or write it in LSL instead. Um, you know, we can do most stuff. Um, and we can have the simulator running LSL2 and CLI scripts. Now, that's really important because... A bunch of people are going to run off and they're going to recompile their scripts um, to uh, CLI and run them on top of Mono. A bunch of people have left Second Life and are not there and can't recompile the scripts. And people are still using those scripts. Um, you know, they've sold them to people and then they've disappeared. We need to keep supporting that. So for the foreseeable future, we're going to have two virtual machines in the simulator. We're going to have uh, the LSL2 virtual machine and then we're going to have um, the Mono virtual machine next to it. And so, you know, okay, how, how, how good is this? All we've done is we've got the same language running on a different virtual machine. What benefit are we going to see initially? Uh, and to start with, we're just going to see stuff running faster. Um, so there are some, these are some uh, of the benchmarks from the language shootout ported over to LSL and run on the two different virtual machines inside Second Life. So uh, NSIV, calculate the primes up to 128, takes 58 seconds uh, on the old virtual machine, takes two seconds on mono. So, you know, 20, 30 times speed up, uh, up to... Generating a 10 by 10 monochrome Mandelbrot set in LSL2 takes the uh, leisurely 220 uh, seconds and takes one second in mono. So we're seeing somewhere between 20 and 200 times speed up for math-heavy uh, applications in uh, in um, in Second Life. And so you know that is that's worth having in and of itself. And then hopefully, as time goes on, we're going to start allowing people to use other languages like C Sharp, uh, Iron Python, and so on. So, uh, you know, we've mostly got it working, and, uh, and hopefully you're going to be able to play with it by the end of the year. It would be really, 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 really nice to have some better hammers. So we've done some horrible, horrible hacks uh, to the CLI to, to make it support what we need. It would be really nice to have some lightweight threading, either provided by the operating system or provided by the VM, um, so that we don't have to do this horrible stuff where we, where we uh, capture continuations and copy the stack to the heap and then switch to the next script. It would be much nicer if we didn't have to do that. Um, we can do stuff with like blitting the, um, the C stack to different memory that's supported by um, some additions to mono but, and we can potentially use that for when we're doing scheduling and then only use the full um, capturing continuations and serializing when we do the domain unloading and when we do the um, and when we're doing the migrating between processes. It would also be really nice to have lightweight application domains so that instead of doing the scavenging garbage collection we could just say okay it's okay to have 10,000 application domains, one per script, and then it's much easier to unload them. Um, and also, actually, it would be really quite cool if we could sometimes relax this 16K limit, because it would be nice. There are applications in Second Life where you would like to have uh, larger amounts of memory, and so really, in the same way that you, the amount of objects, virtual 3D objects you can have in Second Life, are limited by the land usage on your simulator, it would also be really nice if you could say, okay, well, you've got this amount of memory for your script because you own this amount of land, and so you can have one script that's very big, or you can have a bunch of scripts that are very small. So that's where we are with, with, with scripting in Second Life. So uh, those are those are people using uh, scripting Second Life. They're using this horrible language. We need to support this horrible language. Hopefully we'll be able to give people better languages. But there's another aspect to development in Second Life, um, which is not about scripting languages, but it's actually about collaboration, communication, and teamwork. And I'm going to hand over to Zero to talk about that. 
All right, so we started with there's this big virtual world called Second Life. It's got a hell of a lot of people, and it's very, very, very big. And shockingly enough, a hell of a lot of people actually program in it. People who aren't mostly programmers um, are really programming tons of it. And we've got this heinous, horrible language, um, and it's awful, and yet somehow it works, and people do stuff in it. And we know that there's stuff that doesn't work that we'd like to make better, and Mono is one way to attack the micro side of this. How do we make this language and this coding and script environment better? But then we also want to look at, or what we want to talk about now is, there are the things that do work about programming in Second Life, like how did we manage to get 15% of the residents to code, um, that we have begun looking at and exporting out from talking about LSL scripting to programming as a whole. All right, this statement probably isn't too radical, um, but it's a good way of thinking about development. That development is fundamentally about communication. It's about communication with you know, your compiler and your runtime environment and your documentation. And it's about communication with other programmers. And it's about communication with this sort of body of community knowledge. Right? That what makes programming work is a series of communications. Right? It's, it's a reason we call these things languages. Right? There's a reason why we talk about interacting or saying things to the computer, right? Why we are writing. It's all about communication. Um, so <clears throat> what's a virtual world really good at? A virtual world is really good about human communication. Really. Really, really, really. <laughs> so what makes virtual worlds so enticing is that when you go there, right, it's the, it's the reason you're all in this room and not just watching this as a webcast because being in the room is about communication with other people. Well, virtual worlds are actually useful. They're good for team interaction, 3D workspace for actually sort of organizing your work, visualization, um, some things. So let's actually talk about <clears throat> turning the camera inward and looking and being uh, navel-gazing here. Studio Icehouse. Studio Icehouse is one of the engineering groups inside Linden Lab. Um, it's the one to which both Jim and I are part of. Um, I'm going to use this as an example. So Studio Icehouse is an agile team, about eight people. Um, we do all the kind of standard things. We meet every single day for 15 minutes in the morning. Sometimes, well, we try to keep it to 15 minutes. Um, we do coding and debugging in pairs. And, uh, you know, and we have lots of coordination with other parts of engineering groups and non-engineering groups inside Linden Lab. And what you're seeing there is a picture of um, the studio meeting, actually, in world together, hanging out. Um, yeah, the plant in front is actually one of the programmers. <laughs> what can I say? Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of time. The team is distributed, really. Um, so for eight people, we actually correspond to five different offices or five different locations, one of, the, one of which is not actually an office. It's someone's home, um, uh, which would be the Oakland one. So the team is all over the place. How do we do this? How do we actually succeed at managing an agile team across five different locations? Um, and the answer is, this is what we use. <laughs> First and foremost, we use Second Life. First and foremost. We meet every single day in Second Life. Most of the team members hang out in Second Life. We have a special location, our own, our own studio, physical place to hang out. Um, when they are pair programming, um, they are using whatever other tools to pair program, but they are actually using um, Second Life to actually communicate with each other. Now, something we haven't talked about is Second Life has um, integrated voice capabilities. And I'm going to take a few moments to really talk about this because it's really important. So 
this is not your friendly conference call. And it's not even, as much as I like it, it is not iChat AV. This is true 3D spatialized voice. So if I'm sitting in a space with the other team members, and I've got a team member here, and two team members over there chatting because they're pair programming and we're pair programming or something, I really hear this person out of this ear, and I hear those people out of that ear and slightly distant and attenuated. And if someone walks up to me, I actually hear them walk up, and if they're talking at me, they get louder as they get closer. And if I'm walking with two people, I can act talking, I can hear them. Well, so what? It sounds like a gimmick. It sounded like a gimmick to me when I told me they were going to do it. But here's the thing. Your brain's been evolving for at least a couple million years um, to do binaural sound location. And it turns out that you're incredibly good at keeping track of conversations based on their spatial location. It's biology. <laughs> so it's really true. So it turns out that this 3D environment, sitting in this environment all day, you know, with headphones on or with stereo speakers if you're in a room by yourself, um, you actually can get work done. It really works. You, it's really like you're sitting next to this person working and the fact that there are people over there working isn't really that distracting. And in fact, you kind of like the fact that you can hear them mumbling and talking because that way you know they're doing stuff and you occasionally overhear a word that makes you walk over there and talk to them. This stuff really, really works. So the 3D voice actually turns out to be crucial. The moment we got 3D voice internally for tests, our group basically gave up on every other form of intercommunication and went into world and we're using 3D voice constantly. Um, we do do slides because you can upload all your own textures and images. So we give talks in Second Life and we give internal colloquia to each other inside Second Life and we have um, diagrams that we throw up in Second Life. And oddly enough, we, uh, some of us are actually using Twitter inside Second Life. So you can actually Twitter to your Twitter account from within Second Life and then you get your Twitter feeds back to your Second Life environment. And you can use your Twitter log as a log of everything you've done during the day. So some engineers are incredibly diligent about this. And so, like, you know, their, their Twitter stream is like a list of functions they've coded today. It's great. Um, other tools we use, just so we're completely honest, um, is we use SubEtha Edit extensively, which is a shared text editor for managing our task list and for doing sort of design and, and sort of proposing code or library designs to each other. And, you know, remember, this is all about writing the C++ code that's un- and the Python code that's underlying all of Second Life. And then we use... Um, we use Screen, you know, shared terminal <laughs> program under Unix, since a lot of our stuff runs under Unix and Linux. And so it is not uncommon for you to be sitting at your desk with your computer with Second Life open on one monitor, and on the other monitor you've got a couple um, text documents open that you're collaborating with for design and for discussion and the task list. And then you've also got several terminals open where you're actually collaborative typing with other people or actually coding and watching people. And this setup really works. It really does. Our studio has been doing operating this way for 10 months. We've been, we were doing stuff collaboratively for about 10 months prior to that and changing around. And basically, this stuff is incredibly productive. And I think it's the, that presence of being in Second Life that truly works. We'll be honest, there is some stuff that's lacking. Um, we, uh, by the way, that actually is an image from Second Life. <laughs> um, the developer, uh, that, that's Amy, Amy Weber. That's Amy yeah. Weber. It's just, she's incredible. I mean, that stuff just looks so cool. Um, it would be nice to have some closer integration with traditional tools. It's not like I actually need to be able to type on a terminal window inside Second Life. That actually is not actually that useful. Terminal coding is fundamentally a 2D exercise. It doesn't actually have to be there. But we do a lot of like, oh, which machine are you, te- which machine are you on? Um, I, you know, which screen version, who you're logged in as? Um, it would be really nice to be able to sort of have tools in world that automatically managed our other tools outside on our computer to jump back and forth between them. That would be nice. There's still things like when we code stuff for the web or we have web front ends that, you know, browsers just aren't shared, and so we have to do screen sharing, like VNC, which 
um, you know, over those five locations. Like it works one on one, it just starts falling apart when you've got three people trying to look at the same thing. Um, and we are still desperately looking for a decent collaborative whiteboard. Um, like anything, like not even in Second Life, like even not in Second Life, they just all seem to have problems. So those are some interesting areas. But other than that, the thing really works. It's incredibly productive. So what does that mean? Um, hello? There we go. So I think this means that we should reimagine what IDEs are because IDEs tend to focus heavily on, on you know, the specific actual codes of coding or coding tasks of environments. Um, but I think, you know, I think of Second Life as our IDE, really, or that suite of tools that we put together. Okay, it's goofy. It's not as integrated as I'd like, but that is our IDE. That is the programming environment in which we as a team of programmers work. And so I, you know, I think challenge to extend the notion of IDE, that primarily it's primarily about facilitating communication. Right? And yes, yeah, some of that communication is with the compiler, but like the vast majority of it is like the guy who wrote the library documentation and with the other programmer you're trying to work with and the other guy who's writing the other side of the service that you're writing a client for. You know, I mean, that's what it's about, facilitating communication, um, connecting those programmers. I think Second Life as a whole does succeed because it deals with both intentional and casual interaction. I think casual interaction in an IDE is something that often gets missed. The thing that I often find is that IDs are very heavy on structure um, for getting particular intentional activities done and fail at the casual. Um, our IDE of Second Life um, succeeds at supporting casual interaction because people can just walk up to us while we're in the middle of coding <laughs> and talk to us because using simple, simple things like shared text editors with no formal structure allows us to casually throw in notes to each other and throw in comments and to open up extra little text documents and throw notes at each other. That stuff works really well. Um, and inside Second Life itself, one of the great, uh, something that we, well, maybe we'll get to show you is a sandbox, which is a, a space in Second Life where you can, you can publicly build. And that, that fosters this whole building culture where people will help you out casually. You're hitting here scripting, and some guy's got great particle effects going on in his object. You're like, hey, how did you do that? And he says, here, let me give you the script for it. Or here, let me tell you what the name of the call is. Facilitating casual interaction turns out to be a great way to build community. So, again, I'd like us to, you know, I like to think of, you know, the IDE that I really want is not just a workspace for coding, it's a workspace for people. Um, fortunately, Second Life can do that. All right, I'll leave the obligatory thank you slide up for about 12 seconds. And, <laughs> and then what I want to do is, um, do we have time? Yeah. We've got time, right? Yeah, How are we doing? Yeah, we've got time. Um, we're actually going to do a very quick run into Second Life because that way you can actually see it. And also because we've prepped the other members of the studio that we were going to bring you to the, to the studio. You can actually see them there, so... Uh, let's do this. Uh, watch out, the screen's going to go bananas for a moment. Here we go. Ta-da! So one of the other things that's interesting is that uh, we've been spending, because we've been coding a Studio Ice House in a particular area in Second Life for 10 months, everybody expects us to be there. So it's not just that, um, it, that uh, we can use it for collaboration between the, you know, the seven or eight of us, but it means that everybody else from Linden Lab can go, ah, there's this thing that we need to find out about that Studio Ice House knows about. They can wander over to a particular area in, in Second Life, and they can see us sitting around, and they can see us pair programming, and we're talking to each other, but somebody else can join that conversation. They can come and find us in Second Life, see that we're there pair programming, and go, hey guys, you know, I know you're busy, but you know, there's this thing, there's this fire over here that we'd really like to have a look at. And so, you know, you could, before we use Second Life for pair programming, we use Skype. So we'd have screen open and we'd have, we'd have Skype where we'd talk. But 
There is no way, you know, Skype doesn't broadcast your communication in the same way that sitting on two chairs in Second Life in a particular area broadcasts the fact that you're there, you're available, you're working together, and other people can wander over and talk to you. So one of the things that, that Second Life really, is really, really good at is serendipity. So, um, you know, it, it makes lots of things explicit that are normally hidden. Um, you know, when you go to a website, you normally can't see the other people who are there. Um, but, uh, you know, you go to a place in Second Life, somebody happens to be there, you go, oh, hey, I didn't know you were interested in this stuff. Or, you know, you can bump into people, you can find people. You can get the sort of, you know, uh, water-cooled interaction and, and serendipitous meetings that you get in real life because, you know, you have a virtual space and people can look around it, they can get to know where you're going ha- to be and where you're going to hang out, and they can come and say hi and they can ask you questions. And so, you know, it really, really works. So this is our studio. It's actually a physical studio. Up here you can see a little map that's all of the sort of Linden's internal land for our own work groups. Um, and as you can see all the little green things are actual people. We're down here in this corner over here. Um, I'm going to come back over here. And uh, I'm going to... So we normally have voice chat. We haven't got a microphone set up here, so we're doing, we're doing text chat. And Second Life actually mixes the two. So yeah. there are some people who use, prefer to use voice. There are some people who prefer to use text. And so, you know, you really get this mixture. Um, and oh, so we're not getting audio from the computer. Can yeah. you guys turn that up? So everyone, the Keep reason we can't see people, inside, oh. the reason we can't hear people ty- uh, typing is because they're all just using voice chats to talk to each other. Right. Um, <laughs> so if we can turn the audio up from from the laptop, we can hear everyone talking about presumably uh, um, software design issues. Yeah. Have you got your? Yeah, you've got uh, my audio is up over here. So. Well, you can, so you can see, you can see there's a UI above people's heads that tell you when they're talking. So Tess, yeah, so Donovan's the, uh, now talking right now. Tess, who's the white um, kitten sitting on the sofa, um, is talking. So you could, you could see. There you go. You can there see the UI there. So if we can get the, if we can get the audio up on, on the stage at Uppsala, I think. There you go. There you go. There you go. So, so uh, well, this is Studio Ice House. Absolutely. Zero said we're live on stage at Uppsala. <laughs> oh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> So, yes. Um. <laughs> They're all stunned. Stage fright. So, uh, we got regions running on the conductor. Cool. Right. Uh, see, I'm talking to them because I, this is funny. It's like I can't not just respond to them because I'm so used to just being able to interactively talk with them. So uh, we've, we've actually been doing. Um, so this is obviously just us gate crashing right. our private um, our private uh, development studio in Second Life. But we've also been doing things Hi, like uh, um, increasingly we've been doing, doing talks out. Like so we'll go to uh, we'll go to a conference and we can't be there physically. So we'll take we'll get someone to take a laptop and we'll actually do, use this to, to give a talk to people in real life from Second Life. Terminal as well. that we're looking at. So um, let's see. I'm going to pull the audio down now, and we'll go. We'll do a few other little assurance. So should we just create a box and add a script and, yeah. and show so some I'm of gonna, those things? Yes, you can fly in Second Life. It's really cool. <laughs> um, here. So just also you know, see things like, um, you know, here we've got a bunch of slides from some technical work that we were working on, and you know, there's some discussion there and whatever. Um, you could have slides. Um, and then, yeah, this is uh, so everything we're talking about, just to, oh, what's that thing? Okay. This is how it all works. As we like to say, it all starts with a cube that's off the screen. There we go. It all starts with a cube. That's it. I have just created an object. It's very exciting. It's a lovely plywood cube. I can get its contents. And one of the important things here is how easy it is to do this. Right. So there is no barriers to entry. There's no offline communication. There. I've just point created a new script. Point of the floor. Make a box. Add a script. 
and now we're developing in Second right. Life. There's actually, no... I, could, I could edit a script here, or I think I actually have some um, useful scripts that I just recently wrote. Um, as examples, oh, uh, where's the sleeping script? Yeah. Uh, LSL example two. So here I can just take a script. Oh, that's actually a whole object with the script in it already. All right. Ooh, it's a cone. So I just unpickled an object. There it is. I can edit the object. It has a it has a script in it that's going to go off and find primes uh, repeatedly. I think forever once I touch it. Oh, no, it's nice to it. That's a that's a bad example. Silly me. There, this is a different example. Now, if I touch it, it says it's waking up, and then I think every five seconds it blathers at me. This is the state example that I had up on the screen. Um, I'm awake, I'm awake. Notice that I can edit it, like, while it's running. <laughs> um, that's actually the script that's in it. That's probably too small for you to read out there. It's probably not that important. But I could easily just go ahead and, and edit this thing instead of saying waking up. I could say something else, like leave me alone. And uh, there, bang, save. So it's compiled and done. And now it gets reset. And off it goes. And I can tap it. And now it says, leave me alone, instead of something else. But that's, I mean, that's it. Everything you see, I know it's a little hard to believe. Everything you see is made out of these plywood objects. Everything. And that's, that's the scripting environment. It's just that direct and quick. Um, the one other place I'd like to go is, I'd like to go to a sandbox, just so you can see what that's like. Because that's about... So this is a structured environment by a bunch of um, people. Uh, now, warning. This is the live grid. I'm going to a public area. I have no idea what they are building. <laughs> Don't be shocked. <laughs> it's always dangerous to do in public. You have absolutely no clue where you're working. OK, it's nighttime here, but I'm going to turn the sun on so that you can see everything. Um, so here comes the world. You can see how we stream in objects live. Um, now, and so the thing is that there are people here building these objects, and there's pumpkins and worlds and folks working, and you can walk around and talk with them, and they're all talking with each other, and um, these guys are over here. So, oh, look, someone's building a piano. I, mean, I seriously did not, like, set that up. In fact, it's a different piano than the piano I think we were showing you. Someone's built a piano. You know, we can go off and talk to these people. And so the point is that you know, these public areas are where people learn to build and they learn to script from each other and they ask each other how to help get stuff. And so this, this breeds a, this is a casual, this, this sandbox is a casual IDE, you know, whereas the other one was an intentional IDE. Uh, and that's that. Yeah, I guess we just want to take questions at this point. Yeah, so we've got 10 minutes. So, yeah, I mean, it's, the sandboxes are amazing. They're like a 24-7 Maker Faire or Craft Faire. You go there, you know, people are making crazy, you know, science experiments and experimenting with different things. And it's just, it's just amazing to see what people, have, what people have created and also just talk to people and, you know, you kind of wander around. It's sort of like show and tell. It's kind of like a craft fair where you kind of go, look at the thing I've made, and they go, well, look at the thing I've made. And, you know, it's, it's an absolutely incredible, creative, positive, you know, it's a, it's a for, uh, for people who are into programming and development, it's a, just an incredibly fun experience just wandering around the, uh, the sandboxes and finding out what people have made. But, uh, yeah, we've got, we got 10 minutes, so. How do we do questions? I, do I, oh. Thank you. I have, 
I have an idle question for you. Do they have any idea that God is walking around out there among um, them? You know, it's funny. You know, uh, Lindens have what's called God powers, meaning if you have administrative rights, you can do things in the world. And um, I'd be happy to discuss it with beer, but the, the nature of, of the reverence for gods, we, we've gone from when I joined two years ago and there were only 40,000 accounts, Lindens were gods. And now that there are 10 million accounts, the Lindens are kind of like civil servants. <laughs> it's like exactly how our stature has dropped. <laughs> right. And, uh, and the other thing that's interesting is that, uh, you know, you talk to a resident, they're like, you've got God mode, you know, as, you know as if to, uh, um, you know, and they imagine you're flying around just monkeying about with stuff in Second Life what the whole time. Actually, having God mode is like going to DEFCON 4. Mm. And you just, you know, whenever I'm on the live grid, I'm just never, ever in God <laughs> mode. Because if I'm in God mode, I might accidentally delete half of somebody's island or wipe a mountain off the face of the earth or, you know, accidentally destroy the universe. And it's just not something you want to do. So, uh, you know, actually, you're more like the guardians of the, uh, you're, you're the guardians at the nuclear silos who never want to launch the rockets rather than some kind of uh, crazy fickle god who's going around meddling with things the whole time. So I have a question about presence. I love the pairing, the, the studio setup that you have, but um, what do you deal with people walking away from the machine? Do you have anything that uh, The Second Life client has some things in there. Like it actually will make you, if you don't interact for a certain time, you, you go idle. It's really, actually people hate it because the animation is your avatar does this. <laughs> and people find it kind of insulting that their avatar like droops, but that's how you tell that someone's not there. Yeah. We actually would love to have better presence. Our hard problem is not that people walk away from their computer, it's that they go somewhere else in world. Now it turns out you can find them and you can ask them, but we'd love to develop better ways in world to make that happen. It can, it can be problematic. I mean, so we've got avatars which don't have heads, which means that they don't do that. So, you know, the uh, witch, witch, who's the guy who's a bamboo plant, he doesn't loll over. We've also got another guy who's a two, two-dimensional pixelated character, so he doesn't loll over either. So, you know, because I'm working in Brighton, and so generally working long before people in, um, in uh, the East Coast or San Francisco get online, there have been occasions where I've gone to Studio Ice House, I've seen somebody logged in, I've expected them to be there, and I've ended up talking to, a, to somebody who's uh, not actually there for 20 minutes before feeling very, very silly. So, yeah, it can be an issue. Uh, what, about, what are your plans for security and uh, expressing manipulation of rights? So there, there is a, a sort of object permission system and security system built in, into the environment itself. And so since scripts are all effectively owned by people, therefore scripts operate under the rights of the, of the owner of the script, which is not necessarily the same as the creator of the script because um, you can sell them. Um, so there is some of that there. Most things, because scripts are fundamentally well-contained, right? There isn't like <laughs> you can't go mucking any. There is no global shared memory. You know that basically we, we get a re- you can basically package up a lot of problems back into that whole thing. What does the owner of this script have the right to do? Um, internal, externally, we're working with things with capabilities. There have been thoughts about adding some of that security and identity work and bringing some of that back into LSL itself. But so far, no concrete plans. Yeah, a similar kind of thought. You know, godlike beings can go around and do, you know, destructive things, but if I'm interacting, can I, uh, you know, tweak your bots? And uh, There's an extensive permission system, which I think, that, you know, it's an existence proof that it kind of works. I mean, basically, you know, you can't tweak other people's objects unless they decide to let you do it explicitly. If you go onto someone else's land, you can't leave objects there unless they, unless they allow you to. You can't go take other people's objects unless they set them for free giveaway, which people do. So there's a fair bit of that. So you don't have to worry about sort of the basic sort of you know outright concerns. And but also, no viral possibilities of injecting 
Um, actually, one of the facilities that's extremely well regulated through the through the <laughs> because the language is so non-expressive. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you basically can't actually in, you know you can't just inject a script into another object at all. Like, can't be done. There's there's a very limited set of facilities for managing script injection, which you know you have to be the owner and you have to be the owner of the script and you, know, you have to do kind of a lot of stuff there to make that happen. Um, so, okay. li- limited by non non possibility. <laughs> Okay, so Dave Unger here. Uh, <laughs> hey, Mark. And we, we should talk offline about stuff, but the question in my mind right now has to do with subjectivity. Uh-huh. There's a lot of work here to provide a shared reality for people that's the yes. same for everybody. Yes. So breaking that might be interesting and being able to you know, do something that lets me see something differently or experience the world differently than somebody so, else. Um, so there are limited facilities for doing that. Um, so as well as, um, so your object has a bunch of attachment points. So if you want to create a, a top hat, you'll create a, you know, a cylinder for the rim and a cylinder for the actual hat and you stick it on your head. As well as being able to attach things to have hats and shoes and, and um, armbands and so on, you can also attach objects to the HUD inside right. your glasses so, effectively. So you can do some limited stuff with subjectivity there. Which that, Mark's showing you right, That bird is, is for me and me only. That is, that's, even though it looks flat in 2D because someone's decided to make it look flat in 2D, it's actually a 3D object with, with the exact same scripts and the same scripting language sitting inside of it. And that thing only interacts with me. Actually, it can interact with the world if it wants, but it, it has a special relationship to me. And so it, what it did actually is it just gave me my Twitter feed. That's actually my Twitter object. And that's, you know, everyone had just tweeted at me. So, so there's, um, there's, there's another interesting application which is, is something I've played around with um, called Slate It, which actually um, queries the virtual environment around you and it does the 3D rendering transform to work out how to um, project the positions of those objects onto your plane in LSL running on the server and then you can have objects which annotate objects in the virtual world that only you can see. So actually, Second Life is a really cool environment for prototyping augmented reality applications because every single object in Second Life has an ID, right? So it's unique. You can use it as a key. You can use that key to go and look up some information on a web resource, and then you can pull in some information from the web and overlay it onto objects in Second Life. So just oh, look, to, it's raining on the East Coast. Just to generalize a little bit, subjectivity, good, bad, good if limited, what do you um, think? I think it has to be carefully controlled, and I, I don't mean to sound like you know the arm of the law that comes down, but... Part of what makes Second Life work is that it is, in fact, a shared experience. And so I think you want to carefully make it very clear when the user is having a subjective experience and when not. The last thing you want is for us to be walking up and saying, wow, isn't that a cool white rabbit? Well, I see a beaver. No, I see a white rabbit. No, it's a beaver. No, it's a, I mean, you're going to blow it. And, and so I think it's very important that the context in which what you're having, that it's always clear to the users what is shared and what is not shared. Thank um, you. So... Yeah. But by the way, this is a live weather map with live, live, live leather, bleh, live weather fed data. That's hard to say. Um, building, uh, controlling, and scripting objects that are raining or, you know, where What's it is. What's it like outside? Yes, um, exactly. Or what is it like on the other side of the country? Back, back in California, where all those guys are. It's kind of nice at SFO, isn't it? Yeah. Where's Brighton? Uh, yeah, I know. I don't know why. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I want to ask a question. Um, you mentioned that 3D voice helps you organize the meetings because you have the feedback of which side the, the voice is coming from. Yes. How well can people conduct those sort of interactions over time without being able to have um, you know physical gestures or trace gaze and that kind of stuff? I'm wondering how that affects the experience of working in a virtual world for them. So with the caveat that this is purely navel-gazing because our experiences are ourselves using it, although other companies have begun to do this extensively, um, 
within Linden Lab, we've made kind of this huge commitment to hold absolutely every possible meeting inside Second Life so that anyone from any of the locations can be at any meeting. We're a very transparent culture. Um, so we actually, you know, there are, there are no closed-door meetings at Linden Lab ever. Um, and so we really have to make it possible for people just to come in or be part of things. Um, so far, as I said, we've been using it for 10 months. It turns out um, the gesture stuff, I mean, I'm not saying there isn't value in it, but it turns out we've been able to do just fine. Um, in fact, I've even heard one sociologist, there I've been sociologists studying Second Life and the phenomena in there, actually has, she doesn't have real evidence yet, but she has anecdotal evidence that says, well, people actually contribute more equally in a Second Life meeting because of the absence of all the nonverbal cues which intimidate people from speaking up. <laughs> it's a very interesting notion. Um, and as far as numbers of people, we have easily had meetings with 30 people in them, and it works fine. I mean, your binaural thing, it, like, it's so unconscious, it works really well. So there's a, a couple of other anecdotes, similar to the thing uh, Mark was saying about the kind of you know, breaking down the nonverbal cues. I mean, there's a, there's a story. That IBM is using Second Life extensively for having meetings in Second Life. And one of the things Ow, that... it's got to hurt. Yeah. <laughs> so, so one of the things that they've been talking about is that they really like Second Life because nobody knows who's anybody else's boss in Second Life. So, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, Linda Lab is an incredibly flat company, so we, you know, we kind of talk to each other and we say whatever we think to everybody else. But, you know, I get the impression that there is somewhat more hierarchy in IBM. And one of the things they like about the meetings is that when they all become aliens and dwarves and elves and goblins and cats and dogs in, 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 in IBM and they all have crazy names, nobody knows who anybody else is. And so the, uh, the um, flow of information is more free in Second Life because nobody knows who anybody is. Now, whether that's a great thing about Second Life or a really broken thing about how IBM works in the world, I don't know, but you know, it's, it, at least they describe things as different. Now, the other experience that I've had, as well as, in, as well as the experiences in Studio Ice House, is that I've given a number of talks from inside Second Life, both to audiences in Second Life and to audiences in the real world. And it is, it is more difficult to give a talk in Second Life to an audience of people that you don't know than it is to give a talk in real life to an audience of people that you don't know. So, I mean, even though I'm getting very little back from the audience as I'm looking at it now. I'm getting enough back to know when I should stop talking, you know, whether I should keep going, whether you're agreeing with me, whether you're not agreeing with me. Um, when you're talking to a room of people in Second Life and all you get is these very kind of coarse, they're either clapping or they're leaving, then it's actually very difficult to, under- to get that kind of, you know, to-, to judge when it's time to stop talking and move on to the next question. Um, and maybe it is now. I'm getting that impression. Hi. I have a question about the, the massively concurrent system you have. Uh-huh. Have you ever thought of uh, using the 30,000 uh, online computers to do uh, to compute stuff about Second Life? You know? Um, you know, it turns out turning our problem into a computer... I mean, it's already a computation cloud. We have, we have uh, 15,000 CPUs on, on running, you know, some number of thousands of computers. It turns out that within, within the problem of a simulation it probably isn't worth it. It's no more than a factor of two value to break that up into multiple computations that you can migrate to get better efficiency. We probably could have half the number of machines as necessary, but it probably isn't worth it. The overhead cost and the ability to like synchronize all that stuff it induces so much cost, not only computationally, but just in terms of programmer time, in terms of building that system, it probably isn't worth it. So there's one special case where we do do that, and that's because, um, because our servers don't have graphics cards. Um, whenever, we, whenever we want to do kind of um, graphics work on the servers, we sometimes offload that onto the client because we know the client has a graphics card. So um, if you walk around, if you buy some clothes in Second Life and run around, we actually bake your clothes onto your avatar 
so we generate new textures based on the composite of the stuff that you're wearing, um, you know, just for efficiency, so that we can then send those off to other clients who might be looking at you. And so um, we actually bake those textures on the client. So we say, you know, okay, we'd like a copy on the server of the composite textures that you've created for your avatar. Um, and that works really well because the alternative is to use things like Mesa and doing OpenGL emulation on the server, which is horrifically slow, which is what we do for the maps, which is horrible. Um, the problem with that is if you end up with people with buggy graphics card drivers, you can end up with problems like somebody accidentally ends up with uh, their email textured onto their avatar that then everybody else in Second Life can see. So then when you combine that with a meeting at IBM, when you, know, you have somebody and their boss talking to each other and their boss happens to have their email textured all over their avatar, you can get some pretty horrible problems. But you know, we're, fix- we're fixing those bugs. Thank you. Okay. Um, not a technical question. Um, it seems definitely you raise the gap between um, reality and virtuality. And I see headlines like um, FBI is checking gambling and child's porn. Mm-hmm. And um, do you think that, that the world is prepared for something like Second Life? No, I think the world, the world is learning. Uh, and also, you know, absolutely, it has always been illegal. You know, it has always, always been against the terms of service who uses Second Life to do anything illegal in Second Life. This is not surprising. Um, what is more interesting is what the divide is between um, how much policing Linden Lab does, how much policing the community does, and how much policing the authorities do. And, you know, that's still something that's open for discussion. Um, but we are working with real-world authorities whenever these issues come up. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Oopsla podcast. If you want to know more about the Oopsla conference or if you want to get additional Oopsla podcast episodes, visit the conference website at oopsla.org. This episode, as well as the other episodes of the Oopsla podcast, are licensed under a Creative Commons license. The intro and outro music is by a band called The Plugs. The song is called Go East. <laughs>